An unproblematic state is a state without creative thought. Its other name is death. This is Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sassen behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Taylor Gish. Taylor is the head strength conditioning coach and actually founder of the strength conditioning program at the University of Northwestern. Today, he kind of brings us to his big rocks of sports performance and what matters to him. He covers force production, tissue resiliency, rate of force production, various plans, and the play slash gamification side of uh, sports performance. And this is what I really liked about this podcast is Taylor does a phenomenal job of bringing us out and looking at the broad spectrum. And you'll hear at the very end where he talks about history and how if you kind of allow yourself to be able to bring yourself out of the box and look at everything and how small things are, you can create principles and you create things that kind of help make sense of things. And he talks about how this allows you to tinker within your programs and really evolve and change to what really matters with your athletes and looking at it in that sense, rather than it's got to be the back squat, it's got to be the clean, it's got to be these things. You have your principles. And I think Judd Logan quotes it. He's like, where he says 90% of my program is set in stone, but I spend 90% of my effort focusing on that other 10%. And that other 10% is really that creative aspect, that gamification aspect, and the different size of sports performance. You have your pillars, and how can you evolve those pillars? How can you keep moving the program forward? And that was something that I really got out of this conversation, and I thought it was phenomenal. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Oakham Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Oakham Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, you'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with the Yoakum Strength Coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF nutrition and lifestyle guidelines that includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. All right, Marcus, you know what time it is. Hit that intro music. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite level guests to unravel what high performance really is. All right, well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you, Austin. I'm looking forward to it, man. Yeah, we, uh, we've, we've kind of met. We met each other. I was talking to, actually, I had my intern here. I was telling him I had you on a podcast. I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to think about when we met each other, but it would probably been the, the movement meetups with Sean back in yeah. like probably two years ago now. We have, I probably haven't had one in two years, but that's probably when we met each other. For sure. Um, and I do remember that night very specifically because that was my first one. And any of the listeners know Sean Mishka or the team at Emergence, some of those conversations when you're first diving into like ecological dynamics and uh, it's, it's, it's a paradigm changing conversation. Um, but yeah, it was awesome to bash heads that night and talk shop. Um, I remember that night very fondly. Yeah. Like you mentioned, like you get there, like with what you think is your approach and you're like, oh shit, like there is 
so many different ways to like approach this from. And I, I thought that was awesome. And then I also got to hear you. One of the, like, the reason I really want to have you on this podcast, truthfully, is after you spoke at the St. Thomas um, con- uh, the convention Stu put on. I was like, oh, yep. I, I freaking love that, that, uh, that little talk too. So I thought that was awesome. Now we finally got you on it. I'm a scatterbrain. I kind of go all over the place with who I get on for guests, but I'm excited to have you on anyways. That's, that's the whole, whole. Well, thank you. Yeah. I felt, I felt very uh, grateful to be able to speak at the St. Thomas clinic and uh, I'm glad at least one person found what I had to say of some value. And now uh, I'm kind of interested in, and I, I always talk about this with the listeners, but diving into your background of the sports performance world and diving into why you think the way you think currently, why you're presenting on the stuff that you're talking about currently. And that, because it is kind of a different, like we talked about it already, but it is kind of a different outside approach to the world of sports performance. What was your kind of journey to one, get into the world of sports performance and then to elevate to the level that you're at currently? Like what was that kind of winding path like for you? For sure. Um, So the, like many professionals, my, uh, my route includes sports itself. So, uh, growing up, I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska, originally, um, both my parents worked. And so I grew up, uh, as a bit of a latchkey kid, uh, in the nineties. So, uh, that meant running around the neighborhood, riding bikes halfway around the city, um, meeting up with kids, playing games at parks, making up games ourselves. Um, I just loved playing and those different experiences, of course, eventually led to organized sports which hilariously I never loved. So the typical soccer, baseball, basketball kind of trio of, of maybe elementary school, I just never really found my niche. And it might've been coaching. It might've been uh, a lot of it could have been on me as well. Uh, but I eventually landed on track and field in middle school. My father had done track uh, back in high school and he's like, you should go off for the track team. And so uh, I found a sport where all of a sudden uh, a team environment wasn't about the performances of other people, like it might have been baseball or basketball or soccer that I played previously. Um, and it was much more uh, my individual contribution. And I could weigh that and measure that against me. And I could control that. And uh, there's a really type A analytical part of my brain that absolutely loved the fact that I could control that. Um, maybe that means I have control issues, <laughs> but, uh, but I, but I, I really love that. And I love that uh, the extra work I put in, I, I could see versus go out there with 11 other or 10 other individuals. And, um, you could do your job right on a high school football field. And one person didn't make a read and the play didn't go the way that we had intended it to go. So, uh, I really liked that about track and field and sunk my teeth into that throughout high school, had some good success with that and ended up uh, being able to compete in that at the college level. Um, and at the division three level, uh, I didn't really know what to expect with collegiate track and field, but, uh, I ended up being very fortunate to have two fantastic throws coaches, um, really helped slow cook my athletic development. And I do mean that I, I really hadn't lifted before the age of 16. I hadn't done anything with a barbell before the age of 18. And so I come into college with, um, with, with a bounty of physical experiences uh, through recreational sports, but nothing like pure performance driven, but um, from a traditional strength and conditioning background. So um, I was being taught how to squat at 18. Um, and, and now I include some form of knee bending in most of my programs. So it is kind of humbling and full circle there, but uh, I knew I was going to leave Nebraska for four years um, as would anyone who uh, has ever been to Nebraska can understand. Uh, and so I landed on a school up here in Minnesota called the University of Northwestern. Uh, if you probably paid attention to the, the bio, uh, that is also where I currently work. So some, uh, some cool serendipitous moments there, which I'm sure we'll talk about. 
Uh, but in my time at college, I competed in uh, the weight throw, the hammer throw, discus, and then threw a little bit of shot, although shot was not my specialty. Um, and, uh, and also studied kinesiology alongside competing as a D3 NCAA athlete. And with a degree in kinesiology and a pension for track and liking the weight room, I kind of said, well, maybe I'll be a strength coach. And so had a couple of internship experiences at some sports performance facilities, a big power five school, and realized that I don't know, maybe the big school SNC wasn't for me. Um, and, uh, and also to availability of those positions are, are hard to come by as, as many listeners know. Um, so I ended up just looking for jobs wherever I could find them. Um, in fact, I sent out, uh, probably over 25 cold emails. Uh, I went on Google maps and typed in fitness or gym or gymnasium. Um, and then, uh, sent applications and, uh, cover letters and resumes to, to those places. I shouldn't even say applications. There were no job postings. I just cold resume these people, which is Austin could probably attribute to is like the worst email you get as a yeah. private facility <laughs> owner is like the, Hey, do you have any jobs, man? Like, so that was me. And, uh, and fortunately one, uh, one gentleman got back to me and, uh, Prior to my, my previous two years here at the university, it's where I worked for six years. It's called MSP Fitness. Um, it was located in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. And Michael Pillofer, um, who was still very much my mentor and was my head coach there, really developed a lot of who I am as a coach. Um, even though we mostly worked with um, moms and pops, and then we had an Olympic weightlifting team. So we... Uh, uh, we worked side by side for six years and uh, a long time uh, along that timeline, I had an opportunity to pick up a couple of classes as an adjunct professor back here at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. So I was an adjunct. And then that meant that I had a little bit of a cue into the creation of a strength and conditioning position starting about four years ago. Um, I was in talks with the athletic director about that. And then uh, when that job um, became available, I, I was able to apply like um, like many of us have done for jobs before and going through that process was, was fascinating. Um, thinking you had an inside track and then quickly realizing that, uh, you know, it's, it's maybe not as clear cut and inside track as you thought it, but, but really learning a lot through that process too, and leaving the private sector for, uh, the collegiate space. And then I've been here at Northwestern for the past, uh, this is my third year. So junior season. So they say, um, but yeah, that, that's me, um, professionally, um, passions outside of my profession. I'm a father of three. I have a six-year-old, four-year-old, a two-year-old. And then uh, my wife and I will be married nine years next month. So a very big part of who I am as a person. Um, I also, uh, I mentioned the Olympic weightlifting team and MSP fitness. I would say I'm a recreational Olympic lifter. Um, snatch and clean and jerk would be, uh, my preferred uh, weightlifting competition compared to Highland Games, powerlifting, other strength sports. So retired, maybe strength sport athlete, you could say, uh, competed locally and nationally in weightlifting for about five years. And then uh, right now I just play some basketball, pickleball, and any other random games I can go people into playing with me. That's that's honestly, uh, I'm waiting for my kids to really get into like some type of sport. And then guys, let's go, let's go climb around the monkey bars. Or let's go play pickup basketball or something. So it is funny how uh, after years in uh, performance, you know, kind of chasing and pining for the things that got it all started, which was just riding a bike around the neighborhood and asking other kids if they want to go play a home run derby at the, the local ball field. So yeah, speaking of that home run derby, we're going to have to get you out on the slow pitch fields. <laughs> my, uh, my ability, uh, and again, I, I sometimes am absolutely uh, gobsmacked at, uh, 
people's ability to pick up new skills uh, late in the game, so to speak. Uh, I'd love to try, but um, it would be, you know, I'm a rotational sport athlete, previous thrower. I ought to be able to hit some dingers, but uh, my object control is terrible based off my foray into pickleball. So <laughs> we'll see if uh, we'll see if the, uh, if I can calibrate to uh, slow pitch softball, that'd be fun. Yeah. And before we get into any of the serious stuff, I'm also interested in what were those weight hammer and discus marks like when you're, I'm a previous thrower too. I'm interested. How how far are you sucking those things? I lament we never overlapped. So, uh, so my best in the weight throw was, uh, 18.4. My best in the hammer throw was like 55, six or seven, 55 points. So like 185. Um, And then my best discus uh, I feel so fortunate. My best discus was on like the last throw of my career. It was so awesome. It was 48.28 uh, down in UW lacrosse. I like remember how the ring felt. It was just throwing is beautiful. It's like golf, but it's a power sport. So um, I was always in like the 13 meter range and shot. It wasn't anything impressive for, I should have been more for how tall I am. I'm like six, three. I, I should have been able just to power throw that far, but I could never get shot going. So our marks other than di- I was butt cheeks at discus too, <laughs> but my, my shot was literally like, I think I had one, I had one 14 meter throw and shot out of my butt. Everything else is like 13, 12 meters. It was bad. So bad. Uh, but shot discus and weight or uh, hammer and weight were the same, but yeah, like you mentioned, like, man, throwing like th- non-throwers will never understand the like addiction that is throwing, like how just many times you could just, do it in right yeah man it's different i know it's uh yeah it definitely hits different it's i i still i have a hammer in my garage and i usually try and treat myself once a year to like an outing where i just go to i go to a ring for like two hours and just go throw hammer a little bit it's uh i still like to do it every once in a while yeah gonna have to compete on attach now i want to draw this back to because we'll talk about your current sports performance and your overarching philosophies, but I've got the sure. term already. So I kind of have an inside track on what you think and what you value. But you mentioned your track and you mentioned an analytical side. You mentioned kind of the Olympic lifting side and the, the kinesiology, like even being a professor, like it seems like you would be very much on that analytical CSCS based side. And yet when you, I hear you talk about your programs and I did some of the movement meetup, it, it seems like it's uh, branching out from that. Like you have that foundation that you're taking branching out. Where did that branching out come from? Where did you start to hmm. like question some of the kinesiology thing? And then I also want to ask about how you teach. I'll ask that later. But how did you take from the CSCS based background that most of us usually linearly like have that, that that's your progression from freshman year to senior year to get an internship, to get a job, yep. to like where you're at today with that mindset, what kind of blossom that for you and kind of took you down a different route? That's a great question. And I'm so glad someone else has asked me that before, because I don't think I'd have an answer. I didn't have an answer for the the first individual who asked me that question, but I can kind of pinpoint it back to, um, I went to a seminar that Tony Gentlecore and Dean Somerset put on called the complete hip and shoulder blueprint. And in that Dean Somerset kind of rocked my world with, uh, hip anatomy. Um, whether it's like introverted or retroverted hips, whether it's, um, and of course in biomechanics class, you're exposed to things like Q angle being different between genders, but I never really thought about the impact to human movement with when you really consider the individual bone structure, let alone adding to that fact that insertions and origins aren't always on the same part of a group or, um, it, it really kind of blew my mind that. And I saw it in the population I was working with that 
yeah, of course, everyone doesn't squat the same. And, and some people may not be able to squat the same because of anatomical limitations, not because they're less than or need to do more flossing of their hip or foam rolling or something. It just, so that, that was kind of the tip of the iceberg that like, wait a minute, people can move differently um, ba- based off an individual needs analysis. Um, and so, cause I think through, through, yeah, my more analytical personality and then through my experience as a thrower, I was always trying to discus. I was always trying to chase someone's technique or I was always trying to chase someone's hammer throw release or, or a wind up or the way that they started something versus really seeing that exposure to a variety of movements, maybe within a specific bandwidth, right? Throwing is a specific bandwidth, throwing the hammer is even more specific in the bandwidth, right? So, but a variety of movements within that bandwidth um, might actually help me search and find the signal versus just presenting me with a bunch of noise. And sometimes I think, you know, two-legged back squatting could just be a bunch of noise for someone who um, it's maybe uncomfortable or it's maybe painful or it just doesn't feel strong. I know that's subjective, but I think that is a really important thing to ask people is does the movement feel strong and robust? Um, and so that was really the tip of the iceberg for me. I started asking my clients in the private sector of like, what would happen, you know, if you just changed your stance a little bit, or I would maybe do a warm up where, um, where the toe position had to be different every single rep. And you just slowly start to see people like identify different ways of moving um, based off comfort and then not, not judging, um, which is really hard at first, not judging that movement based off what I saw. So is something less robust or resilience because it looks different than what you've seen before. One of the worst things about strength and conditioning is all the path dependence. We don't know maybe why we do something. We just do it because it's been done previously. And then when we really think about, we're interpreting all of this based off of, uh, English or Russian to English Soviet texts, which were um, largely implemented on uh, untested athletes who were uh, planning for, you know, Olympic cycles in gymnastics or track and field. Like that's pretty niche for me to then say, this is how I'm going to train American football players. Um, So I started playing around with uh, a degree of randomness, a degree of acceptability in a bandwidth of human movement. Um, I really like Mike Boyle. Um, like it, it has to, it still has to pass the shit test. Like it, it can't look. It, 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 when you've watched a thousand people move a certain way, say it's like a split squat or some type of lunge variation, you're the adult in the room as the coach to know whether something is going to be a loadable um, movement. Uh, but but maybe but maybe you see and maybe you ask questions. Say, hey, how that feel? Did that feel strong? Um, did that feel um, did feel robust? And, you know, you get this kind of furrowed brow and they're like, oh, yeah, that felt great. And you're like, well, it, it it's not how I would move like me personally, but like passes the crap test and it look, like it looks robust, too. And it, OK. Right. And then not being afraid to let that person kind of see how far they can take that um, from a force production standpoint, which is really all why we're trying to do weight and room movements anyways, become better producers of force. And then when that becomes high enough, create that force more rapidly. So. Um, that was probably like, sorry, the long rabbit hole for what you asked, which was a very good question is what was the tip of that iceberg of opening up my horizons to, uh, to be less analytical the squat must look this way, or we must, uh, capital P progress a movement this way, um, versus letting people find positions that they feel strong and robust in, um, and then allowing them the bandwidth to, to have their own unique movement signature to which they can add load. That's phenomenal. I love that 
like it's it's always something that just like one small thing that until you look back on it, you didn't realize like it started that cascade of like, all right, like, like you said, you probably just started twitting the same with like, I very similar. It's like you start with something small, like, all right, let's change like spots on where your toes are pointed on a squat. And then it blossoms into something completely like what your organic program is now resource wise. How, how did, once you started to like get addicted to that, was there any like other seminars or conferences or people, obviously the, the, the movement meetups that we did, but was there anything else that you kind of went to that further that rabbit hole for yourself that kind of just for people listening that could may hopefully maybe go down the same rabbit hole that you'd kind of did. Yeah. I, uh, I feel very fortunate. Uh, you mentioned the movement meetups that, uh, that Sean Mishka put on. Um, I feel very fortunate to be in the kind of early stages of those. Um, when, uh, when Rich White was at uh, Concordia St. Paul with, with his team there. Uh, I know, you know, Zach, I, I know, you know, of Alex is now at Elon. It was really good to, to talk shop with other coaches who were also considering and contemplating how these things impacted uh, performance, especially performance at like D2 or D3 college level. Um, talking with Stu Bourne at St. Thomas was, was very helpful just to, to talk shop. And then, um, yeah, cause I think I'm, and again, I don't ever want to turn myself off to pursuing research and, and reading research. And it's actually funny in this last year, I probably read more research than I had in the previous couple of years. Um, cause I got to a point where, I think I just needed to tinker uh, and, not, and not, not tinker recklessly um, to not uh, steward my time with my athletes well, but I needed to see um, how all these ideas flushed out with clients or with athletes. Um, and so, yeah, so frankly, it was a lot of it was out on the floor and playing and seeing and, and, and asking a lot of questions uh, of the athletes. So um, it, it, yeah, it could be, could be changing the way that they moved on a, on a weight room based movement. It could be, um, just some basic, uh, you know, I know you had Nick DeMarco on here talking a little bit about how he thinks about maybe uh, um, games and uh, the use of, could be at, at one side of the spectrum, just like a basic change of direction drill. The other side could be like an open-ended agility game or drill. Um, playing with some of those things during warmups really helped me just start the tinkering process and then talking to the athletes of like, if I was warming up um, the men's basketball team and we're using some type of mirror drill, which would maybe be a step away from change of direction, but not full-blown adaptive uh, open-ended agility. Uh, you know, ask them, does this feel like basketball? Does this feel like the way you move on a court? Um, so a lot of my tinkering was, was uh, codependent on talking to the athletes. Uh, I think it also helped that I was uh, not only uh, – new to Northwestern as a strength coach, but I was their inaugural strength coach. So the, the university had never had a full-time SNC coach before. So uh, a lot of, uh, of what I felt like I needed to do uh, working with the athletes and talking with the athletes was also just foundational for the setting the culture of the role or setting the culture of, of what we do in performance at the, at Northwestern. So um, yeah, I would say tinkering hands-on getting in the lab, which is uh can be overplayed. Sometimes you do need to, to get in the book um, and look at resources, but talking with other coaches um, about what we, what it is that we do and then, and then doing it. Um, not always the best thing for, for all facets of life, but, but I do think kind of tinkering and stumbling through it and, and failing sometimes failing that answer of that basketball player. Sometimes it's like, no, like, no, this doesn't feel like basketball. What are you doing? Um, so I don't move this way on the court. Right. But then it would be like, great. Of like, Oh, well, of course you don't like, when are you like backpedaling? Right. So like I would, I did learn something about, um, about their game or about how they perceived what I was providing. And, and it would be a good chance to partner together to, to change it for their benefit. 
You mean you can actually have conversations with your athletes? Totally. And it, and it goes a lot better when you like, you just yell the whole time. Just yeah. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. I'm, I mean, you probably heard my voice and I'm a bit more of a personal guy. I don't, um, I do like to just kind of ask and respond and I don't take a big me, me, me role in a session per se. Um, I usually like to set things up to where there's a bit of like built in rest so that I can talk to groups while there other people are performing. And then we can point at them and watch and be like, Hey, what do you see that, you know, he or she is doing and, um, asking them what they might change on the next set, providing some autonomy, uh, into the structure. Uh, sometimes we call it failed choice. It's not a hundred percent autonomy. Uh, the kids aren't running the school, but, uh, but yeah, letting, I, I firmly believe that if you get to a high level of, uh, competition, um, and I know we're, we're a division three institution, but some of our athletes who play in the game, um, and have forgotten more about their sport than I will ever learn about it. You know, um, especially sports that I maybe didn't have a huge bandwidth. Um, you know, I've, I've dabbled in, I've, I've gone out to practices I've watched, but I grew up in Nebraska. Like I said, so our lacrosse guys and our lacrosse gals have, have, like I said, forgotten more about tactics and techniques of the game than I will ever learn. So just letting them speak to the, their game and how we might change a drill really can elevate a session sometimes. And are you still, uh, teaching? Yeah, so I uh, I still teach a, uh, a weight training class. I've uh, I used to teach a uh, like a uh, how much you say uh, methods of group exercise class, and then also um, like a testing and um, measurement uh, from like a health health measurement uh, class. But I'm just teaching the weight training class now, which is which is super fun. We we uh, we open that up to the rest of the student body as like a general arts credit. Um, so we ended up getting a lot of non-athletes who take that class, which provides kind of cool, uh, you know, different element of my job, communicating some of this to athletes uh, during the evenings and mornings, and then communicating some of it to um, our, our non-athletic student body um, or non-athlete, not non-athletic, non-rostered, athletic rostered student body during the day. So, And with that, that that's, that's what I was interested in is, are you trying, how are you, or are you trying to apply any of these principles to try and just like, give them a taste of that, like, Hey, sure. moving this way, moving like how, how, cause you know, you do have the foundational piece, like being the teacher, like you have to give them what the studies are saying, what the foundation is. So they have something to draw upon, but it's also, it seems in the college sector, like I wasn't exposed to any of this. It was all this side of it. It was all the right side and there was no left side. There's no creativity. There was nothing like that. Are you blending those two at all in your classes or is there a good way to blend those two? Like I, I'm just interested mm -hmm. in your perspective cause you get to live it. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic question. This is a good little rabbit hole. I think I've thought about this a lot with uh, um, my, my, my first thought teaching a college class is um, return on investment. So uh, what do I provide that's going to um, give them a high ROI? Uh, and then I when, when I teach the class, maybe there's other listeners who have, are in college right now. And, and I, I firmly uh, believe that all students at some point should figure out what they're paying per credit um, and, and, and have an open conversation. So I, I do that on the first day of class this is a one credit weight training class. Um, and uh, we're a semester school. Um, so it, it's one quad, it's half a semester and we just break it down per price and we're a liberal arts Christian university. And so it's, it, it's not cheap. And we just have a frank conversation of how I probably won't ever be able to provide you this much value over the next 12 weeks. Um, but I'm going to try and I hope that you soak up as much as you can. And, uh, so that, that's, that's first year when I teach the weight training class. And then, uh, I do often, I try and share with them, um, you know, the notion of, you know, keep it loose, but keep it tight too. Like we'll, we'll, we'll really expose them to, um, 
I think biomechanical categories are a great way to to show someone um, that there are uh, there are ways of moving that change um, what your uh, essentially what you're stressing. So when we get bent over, things become more posterior dominant as we stay more upright, things are more anterior dominant. So uh, just teaching them the difference between, you know, maybe something like an RDL pattern versus, um, you know, maybe like a super upright split squat and then letting them have these different categories and treating them almost like drop down menus where like, okay, you now know your, uh, you know, your unilateral single leg squat. Um, and, and, and then hey, here's your bilateral squat. Here's your unilateral hinge. Here's your bilateral hinge. And then showing them how to lay that out and, and maybe where they wouldn't want to double dip um, uh, and then where they may want to kind of uh, cover bases at. You've got a vertical or near vertical push and pull. You've got a horizontal and um, push and pull as well. And then we have some extra stuff we sprinkle in like you know, trunk work, creating rotation, resisting rotation, carries. Um, I'll make uh, throws kind of their own category too. So I, I show them you have all these categories and creating a workout for the purpose of general health and fitness can just be not picking from the same category every single darn day. Like don't pick bench horizontal press every single day. Um, you know, just pick from a different category and, and try and uh, try and spread out your, um, your exercise selection through a given week, whether you're working out twice a week or six days a week, like just try and spread out and be mindful of those biomechanical categories. Um, it seems really basic probably for those of us in the industry, like, you know, of course we're not going to like, you know, two-legged back squat on Monday and then come back in and two-legged, you know, front squat and then trap bar deadlift on Friday, right? Like we know that that's an overlap of biomechanical positions, but they may not, I mean, they see those as completely separate exercises. So um, showing them how those things overlap is another great way to have a conversation on, okay, now that you know the category, I don't care what unilateral quad exercise you do. You could do split squats. You could put front foot elevated split squats. You could do rear foot elevated split squats. You could do reverse lunge. I do not care what you choose to do. I just know that it would be nice for us to have something unilateral, um, probably more frank, frankly, like more often than bilateral. Um, and, uh, and I want you to be as upright in your torso as possible because that will give us the best quad effect for knee bending. And if we can get as much of the hamstring covering the calf as possible with the shin over the toe, like let's do that too. Um, so I try, I try and do that with them a little bit, if that helps answer the question. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that's a perfect transition now uh, into kind of your overarching philosophies on the sports performance realm. So with your, your athletes and with your teams that you said that you work with in the mornings and the evenings, is it a similar approach? Is it here, we're laying out all these tools and then you, you, we get to pick uh, the unilateral, like today's, let's say today's a unilateral day that we want to focus on. How are you going about, first of all, like what are kind of our philosophies? We, we, we've touched on them and teased them a little bit in the podcast. Yeah. What are those philosophies for you? And then is that kind of the approach? Is it very similar with the athletes trying to give them choices, maybe adding in the gamification category as well and adding in some of that? Like how are, how are you tying all this in into what your philosophy and kind of program looks like with your with your athletes? Yes, and <laughs> no. I I say that just for um, uh, I I really hope that I'm going to say some stuff probably here in the next five minutes that I hope our listeners know that um, there should be zero pressure to copy paste and maybe I, I think sometimes of our craft is like artistry. You might have um, you know someone that you follow. They might be kind of a muse for you. They might provide you with inspiration, and you watch them. Uh, create a sculpture and it inspires you to go create your own oil painting. So 
Um, I, 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 I'll add that as context in the qualifier for nothing of what I'm about to share. Um, maybe anything that I'm doing a year or two from now, and it certainly could change then again. So um, I would say lately, I've been fascinated with um, some of Laden Yovanovic uh, stuff of like buffering against um, buffering against chaos and how I might willfully accept a less optimal training environment if it's me taking a more robust approach. So um, I also was really influenced a lot by uh, John Kiley, John Keeley, somebody you listen to on uh, um, just the fact that like general adaptation syndrome is really general. And so when we've got a group of um, group of 20 tennis players and I'm thinking, yeah, we're in a hypertrophy block right now, and then we're going to deload and transition to a strength block. Like, is that actually happening? Um, I think there's a couple risks with that. Either I'm creating an environment. Um, I'm, I'm painting with a really broad brush um, and not appreciating individual considerations. Um, or I could go like really individualized uh, and write individual programs, but the risk is, is burnout and fatigue on, on my end. I mean, that's really hard to do with, with 400 athletes in a, in a D3 program. So, and as the only um, full-time strength coach, I, I get a wonderful cohort of interns, but, but uh, that's a lot of work. So between those two guys, um, between John and Laden, I think that uh, I've been playing a lot more with what are my big rocks I need with the level of athlete I work with, um, I need force production. So can I expose them to, um, high force interactions? So I don't care so much about the exercise that we do, um, as long as it yields high force. So uh, a lot of savvy strength coaches, um, have, have come to this conclusion and have viewed tri bar deadlift, uh, as, as something that we can get a high force interaction on, um, and uh, it, compared to maybe like traditional deadlift or even RDL, grip becomes an issue that there's an ergonomic piece of the trap bar. We love it. So uh, I, I love that for one of our days, usually um, in, a week, in season, out of season. It's, it's a high force interaction. But we might change it a little bit. Maybe we'll uh, um, go high handle. Maybe we'll go low handle. Maybe we'll make them do a certain tempo or an isometric on it. Um, and so that, that, that may be what, what changes a little bit. But we're looking at force production being huge for us. Um, uh, and of course we do more than trap bar deadlift. I'm just trying to be succinct here. Um, if we look at, uh, another big rock for me, in addition to force production, it's tissue resilience. Um, frankly speaking, we just, we see a lot of tissue issues sometimes. Um, and that can be because sports ramp up really quick. We're working with division three athletes where training isn't always required in the off season. Um, sorry, it isn't required in the off season. So when a season starts, we might have to buffer against some hamstrings, some quads, some calves, things that just get uh, a little dinged up because we may not be as physically prepared. So um, that means most sessions we'll be doing something higher volume. So it could be like two by 20, it could be 30 on 30 off, could be some, some tempos or some isometrics to, to help with some of that like soft tissue resilience. Um, I do usually happens in the warm up. I do like to expose people. Another big rock would be just various planes, levels, challenges. This could be some crawling stuff. This could be, um, I mentioned Edo Portal earlier in the show. Like this could be some just of our, um, some rolls, uh, the yoke of strength rolly rolls. Uh, this could be uh, just the various planes and levels and challenges to, um, it goes back to some of the tissue resiliency piece, but to it, I think it, it also provides some good, just general prep for warm up. Um, and then, uh, it's a little less important for the level of athlete I work at, uh, but rate of force production or power is increasingly important. Um, we don't always see that in the weight room. Um, 
with, with, with load necessarily, but we may see that through sprints. Some of our games where we take them out to a little bit uh, further duration, let them get to higher velocity, some throws. Um, so we, we do focus on some rate of force um, development, but, uh, um, but frankly speaking, I don't have a lot of athletes that are at uh, a level of force production where we need to be training power all the time because their underlying strength may not be strong enough to, uh, to express themselves that way. Um, and it'd be a useful uh, use of our time. I, I don't mean to say that they can't jump on boxes because I don't think they're strong enough, but what I mean is, is it as useful as us as, uh, compared to getting as strong as possible, um, or as a, a bigger producer of force as possible. Um, and then the last thing for a big rock for me would just be like play games or expose them to slices of the game, provide an opportunity for them to compete. Um, and all of that with a little bit of autonomy and choice. So you did tee up a little bit there. I might have a single leg um, uh, quad dominant exercise plan for the day. Frankly, I like reverse lunge kind of with like the, the half field squat handles uh, on a yoke bar. But if I got a guy or a gal who is clunky, they feel like they can't keep the yoke bar on them and they want to do a barbell, let's do that. Uh, if I have someone that for some reason, psychologically, the bar and the rack is kind of a awkward space, um, maybe go landmine, maybe go heavy dumbbell. Uh, I'm really not too dogmatic about how we're loading up that biomechanical position, but I do kind of have a biomechanical agenda for the day. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll allow some autonomy and choice uh, within that. Uh, the shape looks super similar to the rest of uh, what everyone else is doing. Uh, but yeah, the medium could be slightly different um, if that helps answer. But those are my big rocks, kind of force production, tissue resilience, various planes and levels little bit of power, a little bit of games. That's kind of me in a nutshell. I like that a lot. Uh, I want to take this and dive into the kind of game approach because I know it's something that you talk about. You were actually one of the first people that kind of brought it to my like face when you were showing some of the stuff at the movement conference. I think it, you, you were, I think it was a, it was like a garbage can. Uh, do you remember this? <laughs> it was like the garbage can yeah, or something? Probably like trash ball. Probably nope. a little bit of trash ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, that is freaking awesome. But can you talk about how you're going about the game approach? Are you staying super general and we're just doing like the, the chase and you're trying to stay way out of sport? Does it depend on when you're in? Are you ever going into the sport and we're going to do like one-on-one route type stuff? Like, how are you working with that game approach? How are you balancing that of like traditionally you'll hear like, I'm a strength coach. Like, I, I don't have any input on any of the games or the, the skill acquisition part of it? Like, how are you using that game approach and balancing it with your athletes? It's a good question. I think I'd maybe like to start by, uh, yeah, for the strength coach that may not feel that that's in their jurisdiction. I totally understand that. It could be circumstantial to your program or the team you're working with, or, or maybe you've had a coach explicitly tell you, I don't want you to do this. Um, uh, I would still contend that there's uh there's an important part of the physical preparation that would require that. So if, if a majority of um, my time as a college soccer player is on turf in cleats, some of my preparation needs to include time in cleats on turf. So, uh, so I think if, if you aren't comfortable with the agility piece or maybe what to do, I still think that there's an argument to, to, to push and, and say, yeah, but, but proper prior preparation would include you doing things that, that at least interact with the plane surface, the, uh, you know, the equipment, even if you don't have much business telling them what to do with the sport object, which with a soccer ball, I don't, but, um, I do think that we, that we can get out and we can, um, we can do some of those games. Austin, for me, there's probably two environments where, uh, I use those, uh, one would be warmups. So if I'm working with a, a specific team at a team lift, 
that allows me to get more specific during a warm-up. Um, so we might, uh, you know, like the trash ball would be great for, um, you know, for some of our like uh, basketball um, athletes, lacrosse. Um, and we'll usually play that with like a, a handball. If anyone's familiar with the sport of handball, it's like really grippable. It'd almost be like a flattened volleyball, It'd be like a handball. Um, yeah, but we've played it sometimes with like tennis balls if I don't have the handballs around. Um, I mean, that's just an example of, of glorified FIED. I don't have to get too specific um, as far as like, but you athletes will athlete and you'll see them start running screens and talking to each other and pointing out. And uh, so I do try and think about the sport a little bit. Uh, but it's, uh, the second environment would be, um, some of our dedicated agility sessions. So during the school year, um, I'll open up like a dedicated agility session to, uh, any preseason athletes. So in the fall, they're open to all spring, uh, sport athletes. Um, so, you know, we might get a lot of, uh, our lacrosse, lacrosse athletes come into some of our fall agility sessions, whereas we might get more football, soccer, um, coming into some of our, uh, pardon me here, some of our spring agility sessions. So uh, when it's mixed groups, I don't find myself getting as specific. We might start with, uh, I think of some of like Cam Joss's like cat mouse stuff, um, you know, essentially glorified change of direction drills, but the um, the partner um, and the, uh, the, the pursuit of someone or the chase from someone is, uh, is included. Uh, we might do some light mirroring. This would be early off season. And I hope that by the time we get further and further into, uh, for if you're a spring sport, your preseason, um, or if you're a fall sport, your your off season, as as we get further and further to kind of me passing the baton uh, to summertime, if you're a fall athlete, or to your season, if you're a uh, uh, a spring athlete, that I've exposed you to a, a bit more representative of the game itself. Um, for the listeners out there, there's one thing I cannot do at the Division Three level, and that's actually include the sport object. It's a breach of NCAA compliance. So you might be wondering, like, just play football, dang it. Um, I, I legally can't. So I, I cannot actually get out of football um, and uh, and do like a, like a pass route um, or have guys throw or have guys catch or even hold on to it while doing drills. Um, that would have to count as an actual practice, and then our team would have to burn re- weeks and our coach would not like if I did that. So, uh, so to be compliant, um, with the NCAA, obviously in the fall, I'm not, uh, doing basketball specific drills, but we're trying to expose those guys to ways that they would move on the court. One V one, two V one interactions would probably be about as open agility as we get, um, with some of the cat and mouse, a bit more mirroring call and response, uh, sort of interactions being more general ones. Does that help answer the question? Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. I'm going to ask you to kind of dive in a little bit deeper because this is a question I, I myself get a lot is like, what's the creation process? And like, how are you going about this? Is one part I think the coaches struggle with a little bit is like, how are you going about programming these programming quotations, these, these warm-up games? So like, is the lower body have a certain warm-up day to like prep and games? Like, how are you looking at that? How are you coming up with the games that you're going to play on that day? And how, how, what's that kind of creation and programming aspect to look with the gamification? So like you have that mm. kind of random part of the game, like random and quotations as well, but you're plugging that into a program and trying to lay it out as clearly as you can for the coaches. Sure. I think my initial response, and this could either encourage or frustrate uh, prospective listeners, especially young strength coaches, is do you expect your head coach to have the same periodized approach to their practice plan? Meaning. I think we are some of the few individuals that have like 
uh, a rightful concern with like load, load tolerance, how we ramp up that load. Um, and I think that does our athletes a huge service to understand. Yeah, we probably shouldn't be going like uh, peak velocity for long distance day one, week one. Um, so I try and keep my choices more intuitive and in line with what I um, see as some of my colleagues who are our head coaches uh, run in their practices. So I think logically the games, if it's early in an off season or it's um, early in their interactions with me, uh, let, let's, let's pick one sport to make it easy. Let's say I'm preparing basketball. It's their preseason. It's fall. Uh, a game in a warmup might be a very small size box. It might be small boundaries. Um, I may not be letting the cat and mouse interaction go like 40 yards to full speed. Um, because I, I don't think that would be the most responsible th thing for me to do to just jack up the load on, on day one, week one. Um, and then maybe over time we can expand the size or the reps or the, the volume. I'm just trying to increase them, increase the load in some way. Um, could be the, through the intensity, it could be through the manipulation of the size of the game. Um, if, if I'm doing that kind of progressively and intuitively, um, you know, when we play some of these games, we'll do it based via time. And I'll just kind of note what we did. Maybe we did like two minute, two minute quarters, switch teams, two minute quarters, switch teams. The next week, maybe I let them go for three, three and a half minutes. Um, a lot of times, and I'm getting hustled when I do this, but if I hop in on the game, I instantly have a read on how hard it is and, uh, um, and it will be to my detriment, but at least I'll know exactly what the, what the, uh, what it will feel like. So, um, knowledge of appropriate, uh, versus inappropriate distances. Um, yeah, I, I can see the hesitation from a lot of coaches. How do I structure this? How do I measure this? Um, this seems all chaotic. I think you can press into your intuition pretty successfully. In fact, that's what a lot of good sport coaches do is, is it's a lot of gumption and subjectivity of, I, I heard a really good soccer coach one time. I, um, I really wish I could pay homage to whoever said this, but the soccer coach was talking about how we start practice and he just watches them play a small side game and then writes his practice design. And in that moment, based off the interactions he's seen in the small side game. So uh, I think sometimes we hold ourselves to have this, like, we need to be super progressive. Everything for the next 12 weeks has to be justifiable and it has to have the perfect, uh, linear increase in load. Um, and while we do need to be responsible, um, and not expose these people to our athletes or clients to situations that, um, they may not be prepared for, I sometimes think like we really, uh, we really assume what they're prepared for. And that may not actually be an assumption made on their behalf. Um, so yeah, I try and think intuitive, start small, grow, uh, grow the volume, grow the load. Um, and then, uh, and then progress from there. So, and again, talk to people, <laughs> if your athletes, if they're coming away thinking that it's fun, it's, it was fun. Like, you know, and if, if training is an entire training paradigm, warm up, uh, energy system preparation, weight room based, uh, prehab, rehab. I mean, the entire like athletic performance paradigm to me is just, we're trying to elevate this group's physical culture. So if we can elevate their physical culture, um, in a progressive and intuitive way, I don't know if I need to be so, uh, held to, uh, the capital P progression that I do that in thinking, you know, oh my gosh, I need to be hitting, you know, this much tonnage or this much load this week before I can do this one this week, or we have to do three weeks of, um, goblet squatting before we can do any back squatting. Um, 
I, I think we can we can be a bit more responsive and and press into our intuition and go with what we're seeing in front of us, which is a lot of what just great sport coaches do. Yeah, I like I like that mention too about like you're just elevating the whole teams, basically like the human organism. Like if you can do that, like you you're kind of doing your job there. And one th- you mentioned the size and the volume load. Are you like? Are you looking at complex? I'm sure you are, but how are you looking at the complexity of the game itself? And like working with the volume in a sense, volume is not so much yards, but maybe adding a person, taking away a person. Is that the, I'm sure the intuition, is that how you're measuring that too? Is like, all right, they're handling the 2v2 situation really well. Maybe it's time to add a 3v3. Uh, Maybe it's time to take somebody out. Like, how are you working with the complexity part of that small side of game part two and warm up? Yeah, I, I think I would probably progress it in the same respect of less, less complex, less moving pieces to gradually more. So again, if we go back to that basketball example, we may not even like play a game the first week. I might be just doing like some more basic change of direction. Um, it, it could be in a mirrored environment, but but it, maybe it is just like we're just going to rep some crossover steps off of a you know you and me Austin are facing each other and we're going to do a crossover step and pause. You can't do your crossover step till I do it crossover step pause and then switch like basic cat and mouse or mirroring i may not actually play a game for a week just to kind of watch them move and get them moving um and then and then yeah the complexity piece i think uh just slowly starts to evolve you know um again and they've worked with me for a few years now so the returners will start asking for certain things sooner um so that's kind of fun too uh, but you could always you can add that in and be uh, a minute moment right at the end of a warm up. So I might, I might hit some of those uh, change of direction or, or mirroring or cat and mouse pieces at the end of, uh, of a warm up on day one. But on day two, maybe the end is like, right, three minutes of agility ball or three minutes of um, kind of agility rugby. Um, and we'll, uh, and we'll borrow the rules from some of the guys out at Elon, you know, and change the rules sometimes or change the, the field size. I really like kind of uh, Jordan Newsom kind of first put me onto agility ball. And I think Camp Joss has done a lot of agility ball too. It's really fun. I mean, we're just looking at essentially some type of uh, group. Um, could be 2v2, could be all the way up to, you know, 5v5. Um, and then, but but we could, we could add in complexities and change the rules a little bit to make it more complex. Uh, but I would do that over weeks, not necessarily in one session. That frees me up from having to, like, I can just kind of, keep the choice, the choice. I found that if I change the rules and try and ramp things up within one session, um, I have a lot more time on my hands than I sometimes think I do. So it's okay to slow cook it over a number of weeks and, and think about things becoming gradually more complex versus thinking you gotta, you gotta give them the show on day one and show them who's boss and this is how it's going to be. <laughs> so that, that's awesome. I like that. I want to hit you with one last question before we get into the rapid fire rounds. And this is kind of, this, this last year has been crazy for all strength coaches. And I really like hearing coaches like yourself where you are like in the thick of it. You're like, you're dealing with all the COVID restrictions. You're dealing with everything that's happening. What has been kind of the, the biggest eye opener for you recently? We got to chat a little bit about this before we started our, before we even started recording, but what has kind of been the biggest eye opener in the past year for you in the world of sports performance? I would synthesize it. There's two things. The first thing I would synthesize it as is sport is probably the best vehicle uh for preparation so the sport itself and then what i mean by that is uh pre-covid um i think i would have uh i would have said that i need to 
uh, I need to spend a certain amount of time with the athlete. I need to see them check a certain you know number of boxes. Could be strength numbers. Could be just frankly, could just be like they've attended this much training with me. We we hit a four week block three times a week, or um, for me to feel like oh, I'm going to sleep fine at night. You know, the the women's lacrosse team is prepared. You know, like I'm I did my job. I, I think pre COVID I would have thought that. Um, because of some of capacity restrictions in weight rooms or, uh, crazy chaotic schedules or teams having to take a week off because, you know, several people tested positive on the roster or whoever was a tier one for that roster. Uh, I think I saw a lot of our teams use their own sport to ramp back up out of that. Um, now some teams did that really well, um, letting the sport be, um, like I said, the vehicle for preparation, right? We're going to, we, you know, we just had a week off. Let's come back and have a easy practice. Maybe not a ton of high skill stuff. Maybe not a ton of high, um, high load or high output. Maybe it's not even that long in duration. And then they let the game get progressively more complex and let the load in the game, um, the mileage or however you might be thinking about that as a coach time could be it too, but let that progress and then prepare us for the game. Uh, and it was humbling for me. Cause I used to like really associate myself with that process. Oh yeah. We're hitting these in season lifts. And that's really helping, uh, you know, prepare for this you know, upcoming game or, or in the preseason, especially they're, they're hitting this with me three days a week. And one of our sessions is out on the turf, and I'm getting ready and man, look how ready they are for their seasons. A lot of them spent less time with me during COVID because of some of, like I said, the indoor and masking capacity restrictions. So, but they, a lot of those teams still performed, higher than expectations. So I just, I think that when we use the sport as the, the vehicle for the preparation, good things happen. Now, uh, becoming better producers of force alongside that is important. Being resilient and robust against tissue issues is important alongside that. Um, it's all part of elevating physical culture in the, in the athletic department. But I think the sport should play the limelight. Um, I think another eye opener for me in the past year is uh, I don't need to get into the things about going on in our larger society. But I just noticed sometimes like you conflate words with actions that like, I think and maybe that goes into my thing a little bit too, of like, I think uh, the things I thought I was doing, uh, analyzing, what are you actually providing? What, what value do you um, measurable or even just subjective? Do you provide to this team? Just thinking critically about that. that that's awesome. That's a, that's a great spot to end there. Oh, ooh, I almost broke the mic hitting all over the place. Uh, I really like the point that you're talking about how the, the sport can prepare them for the practice. And it's not something that like a sport coach is really like to think about or a strength coach is like to think about We're like, shit, like, could they do it without us? Because the other part of it, like you mentioned, you're like some, some sports did it better than the others. And it's like, you can use sport as preparation if you're actually using it as preparation and not just sending them out there to go kill each other on day one, you know, like the, the, the thought process. And I think, I mean, James Smith talks about this in governing dynamics too, is just like, being able to have everything kind of intertwined. So you can use that sport as preparation because you're being smart about it. You're watching the volumes, you're watching the intensity you're watching. And then that that's, that's the, the best way to prepare for the sport is if you're building it up that way. Like you said, like if you're going to spend your whole season in cleats on turf, you should probably prepare for it in cleats on turf and doing soccer type movements, but not just sending them out there and do like a two hour practice ready to kill each other day one. And that, that that's kind of the, the, the balance. And I feel like a lot of times the missing piece is, Especially in COVID, you'll see, you'll see a coach like they'll miss a week because of COVID, and then they want to come back like, oh, well, we're so far behind, we gotta like go crush it, you know. And it's like, no, you gotta be able to pull pull the reins back a little bit and be smart about the preparation piece. Well, that's where I go back to. Um, we we hold ourselves to so much like foreknown, periodized, planned 
I watched this past year, teams take a couple of days off just because the athletes said they were dinged up and they needed to get some extra stuff done in the class. And, you know, uh, coaches, I watch coaches make decisions. I don't think they would have done otherwise. And then talking, it's all a lot more of, of, of the athletes are, are feeding, um, the, the, this narrative. And in it, like I said, it's, it's a bit more reciprocal than, than it might've been previously. That was a, it was cool to see. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's transition to rapid fire rounds here and we'll, we'll get you out all alive on this podcast. And the first one is, ah, good. Uh, what are your kind of favorite books that, and you can go sports performance, you can go life, you can go combination of both, but what are kind of your favorite books that you want the listeners to hear about? That's good. I hope I'm not going too uh, too rogue on this, but I would say uh, I can't read after the workday is done. Uh, anything performance related, uh, I I will get uh, too busy taking notes, and I'll be thinking about it. And I'll be thinking about how I might apply it, or thinking about uh, how I've seen it done elsewhere. So I can't read anything sports performance related at bed, but I do love to read, and I probably read uh, the most uh, of anything. I read is historical fiction, so that's like my genre. Right now, I'm reading, and I'm absolutely loving this massive book by James Mishner called The Source, and he writes all these different types of books, but I'm going to sound like a nerd if I talk about it more, but The Source by James Mishner, Mishner is a great book. Uh, and if you like just turning your mind off and going to bed in a state of just blissful ignorance, read historical fiction because it'll put you to bed real quick. I'm interested. So I, I, I want to hear the nerdy side of you. What is like, what is a lesson from The Source that you think the listeners can get out of? Uh, so The Source is about essentially um, one geographical location from the dawn of man until modern day. Um, so it's, uh, it happens to be in, uh, uh, in, uh, modern day Israel. And it's talking about, uh, the origin of man moving into that area and all of the, the tribes and peoples and groups that came in and out of that area. So, uh, as I watch the cogs of history turn, um, I sometimes am humbled by, uh, how much value we associate with our own thoughts and with our own actions when in reality, a vast majority of us, in fact, one can make the argument, uh, almost all of us are just caught up in the, the unfolding narrative that is history. And we, we judge so much uh, based off uh, uh, what really a few people do. Um, you, you've said this sometimes before of like, you know, I, 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 I like to I stop and pat myself on the back. And then you think what, what Alexander the Great conquered the world before, you know, so it's like, I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I think sometimes for me, it's just zooming out a little bit with historical fiction or just anything about history. I, I uh, love reading about Rome, you know, in the moment they, they view themselves as, as um, so pious and so devout and uh, reaching. And, and they, frankly, they did. They reached levels of, of society that no one had ever reached before. Um, but it's gone and you can go watch its ruins now. So all that back padding really got them far. That's freaking awesome. That gave me a little bit of chills there, coach. Uh, <laughs> awesome. That's uh, the Graham Hancock. He always says like, we're a pimple of a pimple and we're all idiotic apes. We're all, we're all going to look like idiotic apes in a thousand years. And it's like, I, I just read the book, um, the, the Beginning of Infinity. And that, that was kind of a really cool book for me because it was like, it's not that what you do is worthless. It's just what you do is the start of something else, you know, and we're always at the beginning the beginning of infinity of knowledge because I'm doing a horrible job explaining his book. He's, oh yeah. He's a nerd, but, um, and I'm not as smart as I was reading some of this book. I was like, Holy crap, man, you are on the next level brain. But he was talking about every problem that you, all problems are soluble. We just don't have enough knowledge in that moment to solve the problem. And when you solve the problem, it leads to more problems. So it, it solves the initial sure. problem, but it leaves the more problems. And then you've got to solve those new problems. So it pushes everything forward, but you're always at the beginning of infinity. So 
all the history stuff, man, like that, that geeks me out. It's like, we, we think we have all the answers, especially in the sports performance world where the egos are so high. And it's like, everybody thinks they have all the answers and you take a step, you look at the Rome thing. It's like, man, they thought they had all the answers. So many people thought they had all the answers and they were at such a different level. And then us in our sports performance world, that's like 200 years old or something crazy like that. Right. Like, just a baby. We, we think we have all the answers already. And don't take for a second that I think that every single human being has, has infinite worth. Um, and value um, when I mentioned that cogs of human history, but it's just great to get that perspective. Um, I, I do firmly believe that we are all super small in the lens of history, um, but we're all so big in our ability to impact other people around us. So as much as that is humbling, it also is really empowering to me that um, we can be incredibly small when you zoom out, but uh, you can have an incredibly valuable uh, positive impact on other people too. Well, that's a great transition into our last question of the podcast then, which is when all this coaching is over, what do you want your legacy to be? Salt and light. Um, so I think that uh, when you look at, um, I'm going to pause here for a quick second. <laughs> so I, I, I would say as a Bible believing Christian, my biggest hero um, and someone I would want to emulate my light off a life off of is, is Jesus Christ. And um you know, there may be different opinions about that, of which I'd love to converse with people on. But uh, but the fact of the matter is, um, for me personally, if I'm going to be consistent with that worldview, I'm going to I'm going to live as he lived. So uh, to be salt and to be light um, means to have a quality of, of, of savoriness to you. You need to have um, something that um, that attracts the world around you. Um, I love eggs, but eggs without salt um, are not eggs to me. So, uh, so quality of saltiness, saltiness also preserves things. Um, so, uh, having, having that, uh, that, that, uh, personality quality that, uh, that can provide that. Um, and then light too. Um, our world has a lot of things that, uh, that can bog people down. Um, and I hope to live every single day and have the people who have lived alongside me to, um, to have us in a light that's, that's different, um, in me. Um, that's also a challenge as much as it is to, to just say that out loud to you that I want that to be my legacy. So yeah, I would say salt and light. Coach, that's amazing. That, that's probably one of the better answers that, that we've had on that question in a while. So thank you for being on this podcast. Thank you for taking the time out to do this. Well, thanks for, uh, for giving the time yourself, man. You're a busy guy and I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity here and thanks for all your listeners for, uh, wading through our two shared <laughs> collective brains and, uh, dealing with all of that. So it was really fun. I appreciate it. Man. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping one. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.